Hi, welcome to another session of PhD. This is Liz Wayne. This is Zain Yao. Um, thanks for turning, tuning in. I have to say that one thing I really enjoy about our friendship, Liz, is that I feel like we end up having a lot of conversations where we end up, well, maybe crossing or communicating over the STEM humanities divide that I think often figures in such a large way in popular culture and in like the popular imagination. Uh, wouldn't you agree? I think so. It's definitely very interesting. We learn a lot. And what you guys may not know, what well, you'll now know, is we almost want to record each other every time that we have a conversation. And we get really upset when we're at dinner or we're doing something else. And then we think, this should be recorded. This is so much cooler than what we actually talk about when we get to MyCon. Mm -hmm. So um, we definitely learn a lot. Like one interesting example, uh, when we were with our friend Shyla, who's, uh, in case you didn't already hear, also a PhD in English from Cornell, uh, we were talking about how, what theory means for the humanities, like queer theory versus what theory means in the sciences, mm -hmm. um, like, like theory of gravity or theory of evolution. Yeah, I, I was always confused when people would say queer theory because I thought there was this one definitive statement that people were referring to, and it's actually more like a general field of work. Yes. <laughs> yeah, or so. organized around some, um, some principles. But anyway, um, we thought it would be interesting to do this ongoing series where we talk about uh, me our methodological differences. And so we've ha been lucky enough to kind of go to each other's places of work over the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. And so currently we're in Philadelphia because I've been doing research. And um, But a couple of months ago, I was able to visit Liz's lab. So this will be the first in the series, talking about going to the Philadelphia's Mutter Museum and the Library of the College of Physicians in Philadelphia, for which I was very lucky to receive grants from the American Studies Program and from the FC Wood Institute for the History of Medicine. Um, on my, I was there in the archives, um, going every day, and had a lot of uh, found a lot of great material. And many thanks to the curators, um, uh, yeah, all the different staff that I met there: Anna, Beth, Caitlin, Hannah. Um, and then on the last day, I was able to bring Liz, Liz and Child along with me to go look at the general museum collection. And I think it was yeah. really interesting and edifying because, of course, Liz works on cancer and is interested as in a different facet of the field of biomedical um, uh, medical engineering and medicine. And the, the Mutter, of course, was founded in the late 19th century as a museum specifically for that field. Um, yeah, I, I, I was really glad that we got to go. I loved being there. It was amazing, actually. I think I had way too much fun there. Um, some of it was really gory, but I loved it. I loved seeing the body in this different atmosphere, just to see actual, um, let's see, what are the things I really remember? I remember a gangrene hand. Mm -hmm. some, uh, he had actually preserved someone's hand and it was actually green and it was just really cool like to look at um i saw um downstairs they had this collection of fetuses actually and you can see these preserved babies from what one to two weeks to i think like 28 weeks or something and that was pretty amazing to see the development and see how small it was most of the time I was in disbelief because I kept thinking, this isn't real, is it? <laughs> and then you're going, no, this is really real. So this is really preserved human tissue. Mm -hmm. And then also really interesting demonstration of different types of models that people have used throughout the ages, mm -hmm. such as 
paper mache and wax models, um, all necessary for various reasons. Um, teaching in the 19th century because uh, the section of human bodies was, was a very big ethical topic throughout the centuries and attitudes changed a lot, um, as well as the fact that uh, it was very difficult to get bodies. And I'm really ha I was also found it really interesting to see how the museum exhibits um, talked about the racism of the science that often came up. And I, I remember there was at least one plaque that acknowledged that um, one place that in Philadelphia they were getting a lot of bodies, and Philadelphia mm -hmm. was a site of many different me medical um, colleges, mm -hmm. was by raiding an African-American graveyard. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't read that part. But I, I did actually notice in other ways how they were being attentive to um, different bodies, different experiences. So, so the place that I noticed this was in the Civil War mm -hmm. portion, yes. where they were talking about what, got, what um, war does to people in terms of the wounds. And they were actually talking, they actually made a point to mention that African Americans particularly um, were, they got like worse treatment in terms of food and conditions and that actually led to more infection and, and more death. Mm -hmm. So I really actually appreciated that that shout out there. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting is so this is I think one of the more temporary exhibits on the Civil War and the way they decided to sort of give a human face to the war was to track a, a number of different people from different demographics. So like on the one hand I think we had um, S. Weir Mitchell who's a very famous physician and was one of the presidents of the College of Physicians and perhaps is most infamous for being the creator of the rest cure that is commemorated in Charlotte um, Gilman's Perkins. Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper That Drives That Woman Insane. Do you remember reading this short story maybe in high school? No, no, okay. I never uh, read that. Okay, well, anyways, so he's sometimes just remembered in this infamous fashion. So they track him. They track um, a woman who ended up um, wanting to volunteer to help out as a nurse and wasn't allowed to, and then she uh, still made her way to the battlefield to help. And also tracking um, a, a young African-American man who also en enlisted, tracking Walt Whitman's experience mm -hmm. as, uh, as com comforting on the back battlefield. So it really tried to give you a bunch of different perspectives through real-life people which mm -hmm. I really appreciated. And I think that it was, it was at least in maybe in two different places where they highlighted the unequal treatment of soldiers of color in the Union. And I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition because they at one point they had this big blow up of, um, I think, a, maybe a speech from Frederick Douglass urging um, men of color yes. to sign up for the Union yes. and like the importance of fighting for freedom. But then you had the irony of like that being placed next to what the actual conditions were. Um, we also had an ex uh, exhibit of this particular machine that was used to uh, measure breath capacity. Do you remember seeing that? No, I don't. Tell me about it. it so it was one of the many pieces of race science, well, uh, instruments that were used in the service of race science at the time, which measured lung capacity. And it claimed that, uh, I think that the U.S. Army made this study, claiming that blacks had less lung capacity than whites. And so that was indicative of inferiority, despite the fact that it was disproven Num numerous times uh, around that same time, uh, it continued to influence policy quite a while afterwards. Hmm. I, uh, I, I appreciated how, I guess, in, similar to how you're talking about um, the way that they captured multiple perspectives of the story. So there was this, the patient side, the human mm -hmm. experience side, what I really got out in the museum was an appreciation for the history of medicine mm -hmm. and how doctors were treating people and the history of surgeons and, and things. So as an example, 
I, it, I didn't realize that there was a point in time where people didn't realize how diseases were spread. So if you're in a, a war scene or you're in some, like you're giving surgery, they didn't think about sanitizing tools and how that could actually be the way that disease and infections um, are carried out or thinking about how, um, in addition to um, the tools you're using, the airflow. And so it's just things like that that I, in my research, think about right now. And I should probably segue here to mention that in my research, I do animal imaging. I do um, live animal models of cancer. And so what that means is I, I actually do do some surg surgeries on, on using mice. And a lot of the techniques and procedures that I do have given me a better sense of anatomy of animals and in turn some human anatomy. So when I was looking at the museum, I was looking at it not just as a, just as a spectator, but also somebody who understands the anatomical organization of, of a mammal. I guess that's a weird way of saying it, but but I, I could I could recognize the vessels that when you look at the human skeleton, the bones, the heart, lung, when I was showing a colon, intestines, I knew what they were talking about. I, I know what a brain looks like. I've taken out brains and dissected them before. And so I, I really appreciated seeing those in a human because I'd never seen them on that scale. But I also feel like I knew what I was looking at. And also the tools they use. I mean, they actually have these sessions, sections where they show you, well, when you're having a surgery and you're doing an amputation, these are the tools that they'd be using. And the tools look really scary. It's like, mm -hmm. if you've ever been scared of going to a dentist, these tools would just freak you out. They almost look like torture devices. But they were actually the tools, at that time, they were very, very advanced. And, and that's what I find really fascinating about this museum, just to look back and go... At that point, this was like the best of technology. And because they were doing those things then, now we've gotten more and more advanced. We understand science more. We understand medicine more. And we can treat people better. We have better treatments because of it. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that also what's quite important about sites like the Mütter Museum um, is it also makes us question, I think, the, the narrative of medical science as this type of linear progress mm -hmm. or something that's inevitable. Like it makes it very clear how uneven the process is, how it affects different bodies very differently, um, how it's not, it's hardly something that is um, unidirectional and like it very much highlights the, the politics and power of it. What I also really appreciate is how they like really wove in the artistic and literary aspects of um, the history of science. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, as we mentioned earlier, they talk about Walt Whitman's experience and a lot of it, um, parts of his poems from the drum chop sequence that were responding to the Civil War, which is perhaps uh, one of the most famous responses to the Civil War by uh, one of the, uh, the generation that participated in it. Uh, for, there was also a small exhibit on Grimm's fairy tales and the relation between Grimm's fairy tales and a yes. lot of other medical oddities. And there's also another recent exhibit um, by- Sleep and pregnancy yeah, with yeah, this fairy tale. On the art of the minds by, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the man, I think maybe Greg Dunn. He was a PhD student mm -hmm. in I think, neuropsychology, and then he was also really interested in art, and he realized that the images that he's taking of neurons and so forth um, also mm -hmm. resembled uh, artistic techniques in the Chinese and Japanese traditions, and so now he actually works full-time as an artist, and they had some really beautiful examples of his work. Which, and also our I actually rec highly recommend checking out his website. It's gregadunn.com, um, D-U-N-N, 
and it's just beautiful. If you are a neurophysicist, like a neuroscientist, neurosurgeon, or you just really love neuroscience, I would check this out. The brain, the synapses, the connections, they were all so beautiful, so accurate. I, uh, I do in vivo imaging, and so I actually look at images like this all the time in the brain, and it's just really, really beautiful, and it was a wonderful depiction of the science because it was still... It's like he managed to make it beautiful and artistic, but also be accurate. And I really, I really loved it. Um, and he also incorporates gold and these metallic structures. I, I really liked it and I highly recommend seeing the exhibit and also looking at his website. And also, he's a pen alum, so, you know. <laughs> so you got to um, call out to him. <laughs> I kind of like that, too. And so one thing you didn't get to see, because so Liz wasn't allowed to accompany me to the upper levels of the museum where the library was. But there's also an exhibit of the many really important doctors who were also writers at the time. So we have the aforementioned Silas Weir Mitchell, who was one of the presidents of the college, really influential in ner um, nerve theory, creating rust theory at the time. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was also, I believe, the president of the Harvard Medical School, who wrote a lot of novels himself and wrote a, wrote a lot of poetry. Williams Carlos Williams, great modernist poet, was also a doctor. Um, I mean, those are like more obvious examples of the intersection of art and medicine, but uh, in my own work, I'm very much uh, been writing a dissertation chapter on women doctors and the first generation of, of women who are who managed to really fight their way into the field of medicine. Themselves ended up writing a lot of memoirs, um, and it's really interesting to see how do they wrestle with writing in the sentimental mode at the time, as well as merging it with genre, uh, gender expectations and genre expectations in relation to their gender and what it's like to relay their experience in the medical field, which was seen as being very masculine and dispassionate. How did they negotiate all these things? Um, and then uh, personally, and then how do then they relay it and in their writing? Uh, and then indeed it was something that really captured the imagination at the time. Um, so I believe Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman doctor to receive a medical degree in the US um, in Geneva. And it was, that was about like in 1854. And by the 1880s, three major American novelists uh, ended up writing novels about doctor, women doctors. It just mm -hmm. became a really hot topic. Uh, Sarah Orne Jewett, um, Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, and William Dean Howells. So um, both all really popular. And are popular. they all writing here that you saw in the museum? Uh, not that I saw in this museum, actually. Um, it's uh, other work that I was doing. Uh, this trip, I was looking at a lot of literature on headaches, and then I was also looking at literature about actually one of the, another one of the first woman doctors. The second woman to receive a medical degree was Lydia Fowler, who's part of the perhaps now infamous Fowler family of phrenologists. And so now we so this is I think one of the ways that the history of science gets complicated. We obviously think of women entering the field of medicine as like progress, right? Progress for women. Um, but at the same time, she was uh, married to the. And to the Fowler family, which is part of phrenology, and we think of uh, phrenology as a racist and disavowed science. But it sort of shows how these things aren't so contradictory. Um, phrenology was also a popular science because it helped people with self-knowledge. Um, it was more inclusive. It was populist. Um, it wasn't just for the upper class. And so there's this way that the imperatives of the science, which also was a, a racist science, that also enabled um, at least white women like Lydia Fowler to to also pursue their own careers. And so I thought that was a really interesting contradiction. I was looking at some of her writings to see how she negotiated mm -hmm. that. And I was also looking at the writings of J. Marion Sims, who is the father of gynecology, American gynecology specifically. 
And even though we were indebted to him for developing a lot of techniques and founding the Women's Hospital in New York, and he founded the first cancer institute in New York, he developed his, some of his famous surgeries on the bodies of enslaved um, black women, which is incredibly troubling. So part of what I was doing is like reading his, like what's it like when he writes his treatise on uterine surgery or what it's like when he reads his, writes his autobiography, recounting these experiments and these discoveries which made him famous, which eventually made him rich which eventually made him accepted by like royalty in Europe and trying to rediscover these women that have no voices and how do we try to draw attention to that. Yeah, I clearly, I didn't, as you mentioned before, I didn't get to go up to the museum, the research part where Mm -hmm. the books were, but I also, as I was looking at the things in the accessible part of the museum, I thought I was a little conflicted by what I was seeing. So Mm -hmm. one example is the Einstein brain. And I, mm-hmm. from what I understand, this is a cool thing and that this is the only place where you can see slides of Einstein's brain publicly. But the other thing, when you read the little um, descriptions they have, they'll tell you that the original pathologist who removed Einstein's brain did it without permission. Mm-hmm. He, later, he later got permission, but it, I don't know, it just felt very weird to know that there are things out there that you could just take someone's brain or there's another example of um I think it was this one person and I'm actually blanking on the name but he was very he wanted his body to be buried at sea and actually that didn't happen and he ended up being in someone else's museum and then it was like a really Mm. one of the taller gentlemen Uh he was kind of labeling himself as a giant and so just thinking about how certain specimens are taken and they are put in museums, and you know over time they these wrongs are made right in some ways. But but how do you deal with with that part of seeing the science and actually benefiting from it? Because mm-hmm. clearly these are things that are really interesting to know. Yeah, and I think of course there's no way we can talk about the ethics of of specimens without mentioning NAGPRO. NAGPRO. What's NAGPRO? It's the National American Graves Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation mm-hmm. Act because so many. Um, native sites were plundered for scientific artifacts, so they had to make this official act. And it was really uh, one one of the many things I was checking out at the library on near my last day. It wasn't just the library, but I was allowed to go into the curatorial files. Oh, what are, what's a curatorial? Um, so, like all the files that uh, have to do with the artifacts of the museum, like okay. correspondence, like how do they acquire them? And I was interested in the Hurdle skull collection because. Um, the Joseph Hurdle collected these skulls to refute phrenology, to say that there is no racial differences between um, species. Mm-hmm. And he actually collected, a, and so he was just showing variation within species. And so I was looking at all these files of like the letters that he wrote back in 19th century Vienna about his uh, rationale for collecting them and all these subsequent like requests for information from um, scholars of the last couple of decades. So it was really interesting, like what parts are people interested in? Um, and definitely there are people who are asking, like, so how do you deal with the, the NAG, NAGPRA Act? And it was interesting to see how the um, museum handled it. Because sometimes the, the, the troubling thing with some of these collections is they, it's really hard to know which tribes you have to give, to give the bones back to. Because some, some don't want it. But, of course, they're, they're making this gesture. And sometimes but things are sometimes so disrespected and so not labeled that it's impossible to really know. And so what the museum seems to do is try to reach out to as many of the possible tribes that may have some sort of affiliation to wait to hear back from them. 
Um, but in the hurdle collection, it seemed it's not as much of an issue because they're primarily European skulls. And even though they uh, did uh, reach out later, it didn't okay. seem like there's, of course, the imbalance. So is this the main skull collection? Yeah, the then? one you saw. So is... for, the, for the listeners, there's a collection of, there's about, I don't know, five rows of skulls. And what's interesting about these skulls, from what I saw, is that they'll tell you what they'll give you whatever information they actually know about it. And the most consistent information they had was the time, how old they were, and the method of death. So, and region, like where are they from? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them were actually, as you were mentioning, they were usually from, they were European usually. And I noticed a lot of them were young, so some of them, one of them, a lot of them, not a lot of them, but uh, <laughs> there would be suicide, that they would mention, or tuberculosis, um, syphilis, um, trauma, homicide. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to look at these skulls and look at the varying ages and the genders. And uh, I actually became very fixated on the skulls. <laughs> mm -hmm. And because I was interested in one, the teeth, and I was curious about um, dental health. And one, wondering whether the absence of teeth were because of the health of the human, the person, before they died? Or was it like they lost their teeth because these skulls were not properly, you know, they fall off a table or something, they, they lose teeth kind of thing? Yeah, and it's hard, sort of hard to know because, so I don't know if you saw uh, the information given that he got a lot of those skulls from grave robbers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so on the one hand, you have to uh, take into consideration like the amateur um, So they're not aspect. being taken below care of. But it was yeah. interesting to see because some... Some people had really nice teeth, some mm -hmm. people didn't have nice teeth, and I think that's probably a study in its own to look at those type of things. It's, you know what, I just thought about this. It's interesting how we're talking about the same museum experience because I, I, my sense is that you're really drawn to a lot of the stories and then you start talking about the authors who are writing about mm -hmm. them and those type of experiences. And I'm like, oh, God, this is cool. Look at this bone structure. Look at these teeth. <laughs> Look at the, the vessels. Um, what disease pathology made this happen? How do, we know, how do we know what we know scientifically, medically about the treatment and what happened? And I think that's really cool. I actually think that more scientists, if they have the opportunity, if they are doing any kind of medical research, could benefit from going to a place like this to mm -hmm. see how people were studying things, what people thought of things, just to see how far we've come, to see where we can go, and actually to give them a sense of ethics. Did that make them uncomfortable to see these type of objects here mm -hmm. or to know how they were collected and, and, or, and think about why it might be that they had that reaction? Um, if you're going to do it, if you're going to treat things, also think about who's writing about it in that perspective and how it makes people feel mm -hmm. and the actual... Um, how people actually deal with those issues. So I think it's really great overall experience. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. And my understanding is that a lot of medical schools are trying to incorporate more of this humanistic side mm -hmm. um, in the curriculum. But of course, it's, I, I also understand it's incredibly hard given how much people already have to know. So it's, it's always very difficult. I remember, so one of my friends who did her undergrad in philosophy and English ended up doing a med school at University of Toronto. And I was curious at the time because I just read Foucault's Birth of the Clinic, like, oh, had you read anything about the history of science? Do you, get, do you actually get to learn anything about history of medicine? And it's like, no, we, not, we aren't given any time to do that. And I thought that was really sad. So I think that this is, going to the Mutual Museum is a really cool experience. 
and also I think incredibly useful one in terms of providing context, not just for people who are doing you know research the way that I am or maybe yeah. research the way that Liz is, but you know anyone really. Yeah, we were there a whole lot of people, so we tried to beat the crowd. <laughs> but we eventually, you know, we sat there so long that we had to start sharing the exhibit with other people. And I found it interesting to see how other people were responding to it. There were some people who were really freaked out by it or they, they just didn't know if they could handle all the, the sights and see it. They thought some of it might be gruesome. And um, other people were just looking around. I will say there were some pretty unique-looking things there and things that I had never seen before, a lot of things with abnormal patients. Mm -hmm. like odd cases that people had seen. Like one famous example that I was really interested to see in person Which one? was Chang and Eng. The, oh no, what's that? Um, it was on the lower level and it was these uh, basically a famous example of these two Siamese twins, although they weren't Siamese, they're like oh. actually three quarters Chinese mm -hmm. and they were exhibited three part quarters Chinese. Okay, yeah. wait, Siamese means they're like connected, right? Yeah, si but, but they're not from Siam, so just clarifying because like the Siamese oh, could see. mean someone from Siam okay. as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, or from Burma, as it's called Thanks. now. Yeah, and so um, there was actually a book that was all written about Chang and Eng and about race and disability by, let's see, if I'm just trying to get the name right, Cynthia Wu, in case people are interested in that. And so I'd um, read a bit of that book, so it was very interesting to see this cast of their bodies and they had an exhibit of their um, conjoined liver yeah, see, I, that, that's cool. <laughs> that's yeah. like, how did, you, how did you live? Also, I had to say that I thought it was really cool to see families there, and the kids were so curious. There like, were so many little kids. I don't know if I, little kids were there, and they were just eating it up. They, yeah, were, like, they were asking so many questions. I yeah. thought actually really enjoyed how curious they were. They kept mm -hmm. on asking, like, why is your mouth open? Why, they, why did they die? Why is this? Why is this? And sometimes the parents were just sort of like, whatever, whatever, and not even, like, relating what was on the plaque. And I was like, uh -huh. oh, no, if you could just answer this, like, you could just feed your child's yeah. curiosity now. Or there were times where I saw parents saying, okay, no, you don't, we can't let you see this one. But they were, they were completely down for that. Actually, I was surprised. I wasn't sure. I, I didn't realize this kind of exhibit would be, like, an all-children's level type of mm. thing. But, like, children seem to really like that. They, they ate that up. Now, whether they had nightmares the next night, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it's, I don't know, having, being exposed to things that are interesting but might cause nightmares is, I know, sometimes good as a kid, I feel. Like, definitely some of my formative childhood experiences were about watching, mm -hmm. watching creepy things that end up being formative. But I think that it's really great that it is a family space because so much, I think, especially in a U.S. culture, about the human body tends to be sort of really mystified or you're really, mm -hmm. um, yeah, estranged from, and so... Perhaps. It was weird, a weird feeling, disjointed maybe, to experience the human body in a way that's dehumanized, mm. depersonified. Like there's this skeleton or there's this piece of this hand or this brain that's not in a body anymore and it's not doing, it's not talking and speaking. Um, that that was kind of weird. Did you have like a any reaction to just seeing human bodies that weren't being human anymore. Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting contrast for me because you said you're really fascinated by the skulls. And, of course, I was just in the Czech Republic um, seeing this one really famous ossuary. I sent you a photo from it where there's 40,000 skulls. Mm, mm -hmm. And But then the way that the bodies are portrayed there is a very different tradition than the way that we see the bodies in, the medicals, um, in a medical library as we did in the Mutter Museum. All the bodies in... 
um, in the Czech Republic for that particular ossuary were because of the plague, but also it was part of the art tradition of Memento Mori, which is very religious. About It was about, it's very somber. It wasn't meant to be grisly in the same way. It's supposed to remind you of your mortality and remind you that we all must I die in the point of Christianity. This yeah. <laughs> well, I guess like, but here in this different context, it's about like human knowledge and like getting human knowledge from that. And they, there's one interesting exhibit on Vesalius that sort of addressed how his famous book sort of bridged that divide between the scientific and the memento mori tradition. Because on the one hand, he's writing this manuscript about um, human, the human anatomy for medical purposes, but the drawings themselves still draw on the memento mori tradition because the skulls aren't just things that are static. They are like doing poses and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Hmm. But also, I do think it's there's something interesting about the power that that a little plaque has next to these body parts or these um, human remains, and like the power of language and narrative in relation to the material. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You can somehow just having a skeleton versus a skeleton with a an age, a gender, or like this is what happened to the person. A little description is really interesting, and and then it also made me think about. Um, it seems like we have a fascination with how people die mm-hmm. in particular because there, there was always this point of like, how did they do it? What happened? Um, suicide by potassium, whatever, some sort of gas. Um, and I was really curious about that. What, what is it about humans that we want to know how people die throughout time? Why, why is that information useful to have? <laughs> no, I, feel, I feel like that's that a cool topic, a, too. That wasn't that's... a... <laughs> it's funny. I just looked at Dine. She looked back at me, and I'm thinking, well, don't you have an answer for this? And so we don't have I an answer. I feel answers. like there's a lot. I feel like you can definitely <laughs> delve into it, but that would be a whole episode unto itself. Yeah. So paraformaldehyde or this chemical is a really good way of doing it. There was also... I don't know if you remember, there's this body, but all the veins are still intact. They have the vessels intact, mm. so to speak. So you mm-hmm. can, I think the muscle, the fat and skin has been melted away, and you can actually just see the blood vessels. So you can see like the femoral artery and the, the vessels that go up into the heart and to the endocarotid artery, which goes into the brain. And, and you can see that pretty clearly. Did you remember seeing the soap lady? Yes, yes. That was one of the ones that the little kids were like, oh, why is her mouth open? Why is she dead? Oh, what is yeah. this? And, yeah. Yeah, but apparently she's fully preserved and fat <laughs> Fat helps you yeah. make that process Saponification, I think, is the name of the process. Mm-hmm. They used to think it was had to do with fat, but some combination of the fat in her body as well as the condition of the bog she was in that mm-hmm. produced that effect. Mm-hmm. So those are all cool things. I have to say, though, the cutest thing about this museum was the <laughs> gift shop. <laughs> we we kind of reversed, did this, this tour because we ended up looking in the gift shop first, and they had these little characterized um, dolls, little... The, the little um, cell plushies. Um, yeah, yeah. Germ plushies. They've been really popular, and you see them in a lot of other places, but this is a, probably one of the largest collections I've seen. Oh, really? I've never seen them. They had really? platelets and white blood cells, yeah, and they had they're really little popular. things of viruses and bacteria. And, um, you know, some of them were really cute and really useful, and other times, like, oh, I'm going to put Ebola down. <laughs> Don't need Ebola in my life. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, giant plush microbes. They're called Giant Microbes. They have a website, and they're also on ThinkGeek. Hmm. 
Now you know what to get your fellow science friends for gifts. I know. I, I would have lost a lot of money in that store. <laughs> I would have lost my rent money. <laughs> but it, it was really fun, and I would, I would actually invite and encourage my um, other scientist friends to go. Also, I'm just really proud of myself. I really am because it felt like I felt like that was my my lane. I felt like I understood the human body and just being able to recognize certain things. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know where this is. This is it. This is the skull. I'm just looking at. I'm looking at the the skull. I'm looking at all the sutures and uh, thinking about all the things that I've known or seen about that in my PhD experience. And so I was really proud of that. And I felt like, okay, this had a purpose. This was useful for something. Also, I think it's interesting to think of ourselves, you and I, in the context as part of this ongoing history of science. Mm-hmm. Like, because if you think about it, it's not like we saw there's in the, uh, in the exhibit as close as they're trying to be anything about any black women scientists or doctors, mm-hmm. anything about any Asian women, well, no literary, literary critics, but you know, but like we we as bodies going through that space and, lear- and learning from this, we're also adding something to that particular history and perhaps complicating it in a different way. Just by our existence? I think so. Like, I mean, uh, on the one hand, it's kind of maybe overstating it, but I think that we can't underestimate that there is something interesting about the two of us going through this particular history of science that, um, as we could see, has either excluded us or been built on the bodies of people who um, look very similar to us and that we might even be related to in a distant way. It's a sort of strange way to think about it, but... Yeah, the, I guess. It's a beautiful... Yeah, it's a beautiful moment. Because we're, we're a part of that history, right? Um, it's not just one that we're passively observing behind the glass. Yeah. Yeah, maybe one thing I will do one day contributes to that and you're reading about it and you're making this part of your dissertation and your research and your studies... That's a good note to end on, I think. (laughs) It's a very positive experience. So thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in with us. We are on, of course, iTunes, Stitcher, Tumblr. Follow us on Twitter at PhDBus Podcast. And we hope to hear from you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening once again. Bye.